1 Peter chapter 1, and our text will be verses 6 and 7 this morning. Now, back in verse 2, we noticed that there was a Trinitarian formula. And we saw God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all intimately connected to our salvation. But verses 3 through 12, this is, I've been saying, is a sort of a preface to everything Peter is going to say in his letter, exhorting Christians how to live the Christian life in the midst of a godly or ungodly world. Everything that he's going to say in verses 3 through 12 here in chapter 1 is a preface. It shows us our identity in Christ, new life in Jesus Christ, and these verses also follow a Trinitarian sequence. I'll just point this out. Verses 3 through 5 we saw a couple weeks ago, focused on God the Father. And we saw that God the Father is the one who causes his people to be born again. Now, verses 6 through 9 are going to focus on God the Son, and we're going to see Jesus Christ. Peter's going to allude to his appearing and how much we love him. And then in verses 10 through 12, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit and the mystery of our great salvation. So I just wanted to point that out. If you found your place at 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's holy word. And let's read our text, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the reading of God's inerrant word. You may be seated. Let's begin by acknowledging our Lord. Our Father in heaven, we wait on you this morning. We are silent before you. We hunger for your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and humility to receive what it is you have to say to us this morning. Wherever there's pain and suffering, wherever there's a struggle of faith, even represented in this room or by anyone listening, we pray that you would give your people hope. We pray that you would fill your people with joy in the truth. And we pray that if there be anyone in our midst that doesn't know Jesus Christ, they don't have this glorious hope and peace of eternal salvation, we pray that you would confront them with the Savior and draw them into salvation, O Lord. Father, we ask that you would speak now through your servant, in Jesus' name, amen. It was July of AD 64. The ground was very dry. There was a strong summer wind in the air, and historians still debate as to how it started. But on the evening of July 19th, a fire began to spread in the merchant district of Rome. It was a fire that would go out of control and would rage for six days. And when they finally, after six days, got it under control, it then reignited another three days. After nine days of a raging fire, two-thirds of the empire's greatest city lay in ruins. Now, the emperor at the time was a man named Nero. You may have heard about him, remembered something about him in grade school. Well, Nero was a mentally unstable and morally deranged man, to put it frankly. He murdered his own mother, his stepfather, wives, 
and others so that no one trusted Nero. No one felt safe with Nero, and including his own family. The historians, Pliny the Elder, Suetonius, Cassius Dale, all tell us that Nero himself commanded this fire in order to purge the city and clear space for the Domus Aurea, which would be his own golden house. And regardless of whether or not that's true, even if Nero did not order this fire, he at least understood the suspicion that he faced from the Roman populace. And so the emperor needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to blame for this terrible fire. And he didn't have to look far. For there was another hatred fomenting in Rome for some time. And listen to Tacitus' report on the events following the Great Fire of Rome. Tacitus was just a boy when this happened, but he couldn't forget it. As he recalls, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called the Christians. Called the Christians by the populace. An arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty, and then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. That's history. These things happened. And Tacitus is telling us that Christians were accused of hatred of the human race. How is that? How are Christians accused as haters? Well, in the same manner after which Christians are accused of being haters today. Christians preach the uncompromising truth of Jesus Christ. That men are sinners. And we serve a holy God. And we need God's forgiveness. We need to repent of our sins. And so Christians, with their belief in sin and the total depravity of man, were actually labeled, get this, as haters of humanity. Christians were labeled as haters. And on this account, they were savagely persecuted. Ironically, many Christian scholars believe First Peter, the letter that we're studying, was written just within months just months prior to this great fire of Rome I was just telling you about. Here's why that's so amazing. Because these Christians could have had no idea of, of the storm that was about to break upon them. We've already seen that Peter is writing to comfort Christians who in this time are undergoing some sort of pressure. There's a rising antagonism against Christianity, and yet they could not possibly be aware of the storm that was about to come. That within just uh, maybe a couple years or months, persecution would break forth from Rome like they'd never seen before. And brothers and sisters, I think that's worth pointing out at the outset of this study because I truly believe if you and I were to truly understand the pressures and the difficulties and perhaps even the persecution, yes, all of the trials that are awaiting in your future, in our future, as believers in Jesus Christ, I think we would take very seriously the words of this text. God will surely test the faith of his people. Last week we saw the amazing blessing, or, or in a couple weeks ago, last week was Mother's Day, right? But a couple weeks ago in Peter, we saw the amazing 
blessing of our salvation from verses 3 through 5. And this morning, we're going to see that that great salvation doesn't come to us without great testing. We're going to see that, that our salvation that God has given us is actually the testing ground for God's work in his people. God will test the faith of his people. That means no Christian will get a pass. No one here, regardless of how much you love Jesus, is promised an exemption from suffering. God knows our faith needs the benefit of suffering. But here's the good news we're going to see in our text in verses 6 and 7. True Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering. True Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering. And Peter's going to give us four reasons Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering. The first reason that we find in verse 6 is that the distress of trials does not diminish our salvation. Peter begins in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. Notice first, these Christians are greatly rejoicing in their salvation. Look back with me at verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It doesn't stop there. Verse 4, To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow, that is quite a mouthful. That is an awesome, amazing salvation he's just described. And now he says in verse 6, In this, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice. Now how did Peter know that these Christians scattered across Asia Minor while he's in Rome were actually rejoicing? How, how did he know that? Well, likely he had heard of their joy. Apparently he's heard of the persecution they're suffering. And with that knowledge of their suffering, he's also learned that these Christians are persevering. They're rejoicing. But I think we can say that whatever the case, Peter also knows every true Christian will rejoice in the blessing of his or her salvation. It's at least certain that Peter could be confident in rejoicing of his reader's salvation, giving how amazing that salvation is. In fact, I think we could say it's impossible for any true believer who gets a hold of what we have in Jesus Christ, it's impossible not to rejoice. And so these Christians are rejoicing in their salvation. And he says, you greatly rejoice. The word he uses here is very specific. It's a, it's a word that is used in the New Testament uniquely of spiritual joy. Now, obviously, the New Testament was written in Greek originally, but you know that in extant Greek literature, we don't find non-biblical writers using this word. This word for joy here, for rejoicing, is exclusively employed by New Testament writers. And they limit its usage to a joy that is spiritually oriented, spiritual in origin. It's a joy that has to do with God. And we're actually going to look at this joy more next week when we look at verses 8 and 9, but just look at verse 8. He says, And though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you, and here's the same word, you greatly rejoice. With joy inexpressible and full of glory. Man, this is, this is quite a joy. This is not like the joy you get 
when your team wins the Super Bowl or something like that. It's not the joy you experience with good food or physical intimacy. This joy is something that only God can give a human being. That's this kind of deep, incredible joy. But he's saying these Christians greatly rejoiced in their salvation. And notice, these Christians greatly rejoiced despite their distress. The distress of their trials. Verse 6, in this salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. The word translated, you have been distressed, is not describing um, a, a physical pain, but an inner sorrow that is brought upon us by external circumstances. And the language here indicates these Christians were rejoicing despite their distress. We could read Peter as saying, you greatly rejoice, although you have been distressed. And there's a passive voice, and that indicates these Christians weren't causing themselves distress. They were being caused distress by someone else. I think we could all agree that, that uh, there are things, there are people, there are circumstances in our life that causes us distress. Well, Peter here, in what he's saying, his words sort of reflect a teaching that comes from his master, the one he studied under for three years. Listen to these famous words of Jesus in Matthew 10, uh, chapter 5, verse 10 and through 12. Blessed, Jesus says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Well, I thought that was not a good thing when we're persecuted. Well, Jesus says it is. He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say falsely all kinds of evil against you because of me. What? It's very upside down, isn't it? And he continues. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Jesus called Christians to rejoice in suffering. Paul says in Romans 5, 3, we can exult in our tribulations. James 1, 2, we are commanded to consider it all joy when, not if, but when we fall into various trials. The Christian can have joy despite his distress. We're commanded to have joy despite our distress. And why is that? How is that? That is because the Christian's joy is anchored in Christ. It's anchored in our salvation, which isn't contingent upon our changing circumstances. This is a reality that does not diminish. So the distress of trials may certainly put a damper on your joy. I think we just need to be honest. Christians don't love suffering, right? We feel it like anyone else. We're human. And yet, if you truly know Christ, you can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering you're enduring because... You come back to this reality. My joy isn't predicated on my circumstances. My joy is predicated on Christ. My joy is in Christ's salvation. It's in Jesus and what Jesus has done for me. And nothing and no one can change that. To his grieving disciples, Jesus would say in John 16, 22, your heart will rejoice. They were sorrowful. They didn't feel it. But Jesus said, your heart will rejoice. And he says, and no one will take your joy away from you. Now you could just imagine how frustrating that would be to the enemies of the cross 
as they tried to stomp out Christianity even in the earliest centuries. When Emperor Valens threatened the Christian Eusebius with confiscation of all his goods and torture and banishment or even death, Eusebius, the courageous Christian, replied, He needs not fear confiscation, who has nothing to lose, nor banishment, to whom heaven is his country, nor torments when his body can be destroyed at one blow, nor death, which is the only way to set him at liberty from sin and sorrow. That is unconquerable. And that is why no amount of martyrdom and suffering could stop out the work of Christ in his church. Because trials, suffering, distress does not diminish our salvation. It's not distress that overcomes the Christian's joy, according to the Bible, but it's the Christian's joy that overcomes distress. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 6.10, Christians are sorrowful. We are Often sorrowful, aren't we? Yet always rejoicing. Often sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Look, it may be midnight. You may feel you're chained in some dungeon somewhere. And you may be suffering for wrongly for the cause of Christ. But if you get a hold of what Peter is talking about, this glorious salvation in this text, if you look at Jesus Christ and recall his salvation for you, that does not change you with Paul and Silas, can lift your voice at midnight in the dungeon of life and you can praise and sing glory to God. And you could say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You could say, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm redeemed. And glory to God, nothing can change that. The distress of trials does not diminish our salvation. But a second reason Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering is that The duration of trials is only for a moment. The duration of trials is only for a moment. Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while. So he concedes that the distress in trials is now and for a little while. It is presently and temporarily a reality, but just for a moment. And he uses this same expression for a little while in 1 Peter 5.10. Because we might wonder, what do you mean, Peter? A few minutes? A few days? Years? What, is, what are you thinking? Well, he uses the same expression, 1 Peter 5.10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter saying, man, compared against the backdrop of eternity, this is just a little while. This is just a moment of time. Over against the weight of their trials, Peter sets the eternal weight of glory. And this means the time of a Christian suffering is relatively brief. And can we even say this? Ultimately, against the backdrop of eternity, it is negligible. We will forget about it eventually. On the grand scale of eternity, Paul would tell Christians, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Now how could Paul say that? Well, he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outer man is decaying, like our bodies getting older, breaking down, suffering, feeling the pain. He says even though that's happening, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For the momentary light affliction, light affliction, 
is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Now, by the way, just understand, Paul went through a lot of suffering. So when he says light affliction, it's not what we call light affliction. But he says it's light affliction compared to this eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul wants you to know, God wants you to know this morning, that eternity will put any suffering into perspective for you. And last Monday, I took our three-year-old out for a lunch. It was her turn for a daddy date. But our five-year-old had a little trouble with this because he wasn't he was kind of expecting that we were going to do these things together. And in his mind, the fact that I was going to be gone for 30 minutes was just a real trial. And that was going to ruin his whole day. And, uh, you know, daddy's going to be gone for 30 minutes. You know, as adults, that's somewhat comical because we understand, look, I'm coming right back. It's just 30 minutes. What's the big deal? But when we put ourselves, and we understand too, children have a hard concept of time, right? They just don't understand time like adults do. And yet, when we put ourselves in their situation some, we're suffering, we're, we're going through some kind of difficulty or hardship in our life. Isn't it true that 30 minutes can seem like an agony of eternity? Especially if you're in traffic. Come on now. If you're, you're in traffic, really bad traffic, 30 minutes is a long time. But I think God wants to bring us back to a biblical perspective here on our trials. Of our lifetime, God says to us, our lifetime. He says, don't you know that you are just a vapor? A vapor of steam. Appears for a time and then vanishes away. You ever seen a vapor of steam? It's there and gone. That is your entire lifetime of suffering. God wants you to put this in perspective. What is 30 minutes to a lifetime? What is a lifetime to eternity? It's a little while. More literally, it is no time at all. It's only a moment. And if we grasp the brevity of our suffering over against eternity, no suffering will be unbearable. You know, we see this at work, even in the, the non-believing, non-Christian world. People understand this. Any woman who's ever labored through the pains of childbirth, if she, if she ever felt that this were endless, she would despair. She, she would just give up right, of ever having children, and none of us would be here. But even in the worst of child pains, what is a mother's consolation? It is that her pain will give way to joy. Same thing is true of a runner. Think of an Olympian runner who is, his chest is just burning, and his head is throbbing, and he feels like he's going to collapse, but he continues pushing through the pain, pushing through the agony, because he wants the gold. And that is his consolation. That this too will pass. Think of soldiers rushing through bullets and shrapnel, enduring combat with the consolation that this war will be over. That my turn will be served. I too will return home. And in the same way, a Christian who is presently suffering, temporarily suffering, can find great comfort in knowing the duration of this pain is only for a moment. And it's better to suffer now for Christ than to suffer later God's wrath for all eternity. Isn't that true? If your faith is in Christ, look to him. Consider how relatively light and brief your suffering is in the scope of eternity. And you can genuinely rejoice in whatever distress. Listen to Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. 
Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. That is the hope of every Christian. The distress of trials does not diminish our salvation. The duration of trials is only for a moment. But a third reason Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering Peter would want us to know is that the design of trials is ordained by God for our good. Let's not miss that. God ordains trials. It's his design for our good. Verse 6 again. In this you greatly rejoice, even though, now for a little while, if necessary. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Peter is implying that trials are a part of God's necessary design for us. In other words, Peter's saying, if this suffering you're undergoing was not necessary, you wouldn't be suffering it. And I think this is important. Because, I don't know about you, but when I'm undergoing distress, when I'm undergoing what I consider to be really heavy distress, I often tend to think, Lord, is this really necessary? Maybe something happened even this morning or this week. And you're saying, Lord, was that really necessary? We tend to look at God that way. Well, when God's testing you by bringing distress upon you, you will either decide to doubt him by believing that you have a better plan for your life and you could have done it a better way. I hear people talk like that all the time. We think like that very often. We can think that way. God, we have a better way for our life or we can trust him. We can trust that his way is perfect. I just want to say, I think we're all glad that toddlers are very limited in strength. <laughs> toddlers are not very capable of bringing about their designs. And we're all thankful for that because otherwise the world would be much more dangerous than it already is. And yet sometimes we may tend to view God as a giant toddler. Understand now, God endowed with unlimited power and strength, wreaking havoc on our life, on our world, making a mess. And we tend to view God then as irrational, careless, sensitive, giant toddler. What does the Bible teach though? The Bible teaches us that God is not only all-powerful, he's all-wise. He's all-good. And his children then can rest assured whatever he's doing is necessary for our good. So trials are a part of God's necessary design. And God uses, Peter will say, diverse trials, various trials for accomplishing his purpose. Peter says, you have been distressed by various trials. You know, each of the 12 times that the word to suffer occurs in, in 1 Peter, in this brief letter, it, it describes the suffering, the suffering of Christ or of Christ's people at the hands of persecutors. So we know what Peter had in mind most directly was persecution. When he's talking about suffering, he's talking about persecution. He doesn't specify all that that entails. We see in chapter 4, it involved reviling, it involved mocking. A couple times, he describes this suffering as a fiery ordeal, which certainly suggests this is intense in some cases. So the, the trials Peter's original audience were suffering had to do with persecution, but these various trials he mentions 
would include all forms and degrees of testing. Sometimes, and I mention that because sometimes it's easy to feel that, you know, our life is really hard, we have it really bad, we could feel sorry for ourselves, until we wake up and we realize what Christians are suffering on the other side of the world. And what people are enduring, even right now as we speak, for the cause of Christ. And then we realize, wow, we have it pretty good. This week I read that rioting mobs have taken the lives of at least six people and destroyed or burned down 25 churches in northeastern India. Since May 3rd, thousands of victims, the majority of them Christians, have fled their homes and businesses as they've gone up in flames. And in light of what some are suffering, you know, our petty issues can just seem so trivial, right? But here's the other balance. At the same time, we need to wake up and realize that every day, in some way, God is testing our faith. On whatever degree, of some various kind God, of trial, God is testing your faith. Uh, let me ask you, Christian, what is causing you distress this morning? What is causing distress for you? What is it that threatens to steal your joy? What is it that threatens to remove your focus from Christ and the truth of his word? What is it that pressures you to conform to the world? What is it that challenges you or challenges what you know to be right and true and good? That, whatever it is, is a trial for you. It's a test, however small it may seem. And every day, in various circumstances, your faith will undergo testing by trials of various kinds, to various degrees. But how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? And how are we going to respond in faith to our testing if we don't even realize we're being tested? Right? I think it's worth that we understand next time we're in a traffic jam, or we're in the checkout lane, or your washer breaks and leaks water all over the basement floor, that... You're being tested. Your faith is undergoing testing. How are you going to respond? Just be aware, when you leave this place, or for some of us, before we leave this place, your faith will be tested. And God's purpose for this testing is to prove our faith, Peter says. He says, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, verse 7, so that, here's the design, so that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the same New Testament word for trials or testing is a word used for temptations, which is interesting because trials and temptations both refer to the same circumstances, the same situations. They're made of the same substance. But here's the difference. God designs testing for our good. The enemy, the evil one, the devil, our adversary, designs temptations to draw us into sin for our demise. Last Thursday, a bunch of us were handing out Christian literature. And just imagine you were there, and you hand out to someone this little gospel pamphlet. It's got outlined in it the wonderful plan of God's salvation for this dear sinner. And they take that pamphlet, they rip it up, and they spit in your face. Now, let's be honest, we would be tempted to feel, what, angry. Satan 
would design in this situation that we would respond in anger and that we would respond with uh, maybe vengeance or with unkind words or thoughts or perhaps discouragement or fear or whatever. But God takes that same situation in the same circumstances and he's designed it so that you would respond how? With mercy, with love, with turning the other cheek, with showing the same endurance that Christ showed when he was treated in such ways. God is designing these same situations for our good that we would look to Christ and grow. We would learn and grow stronger in our faith. So when Peter says our faith is being tested by fire here, let's just understand the imagery. He's mentioning tested by fire just like gold. Gold that is, I mean, gold is perishable. Gold doesn't last forever. But he's saying just as gold is being tested by fire, so is our faith. Do you see the image there? This will help us this week. This will help us in our life as Christians, as we suffer. God is a master craftsman. We are his precious metals. We are what God is working with. We are his vessels in the making. And trials, the things that we don't like in life, that's God's tools. That's God's crucible. His instruments by which he is hammering and shaping you and softening and solidifying you and purifying you to be a vessel meet for his use. Peter actually claims that the proof of our faith is more precious than gold. Do you believe that? That's hard to believe, isn't it? The things that we don't like in life that are so distressing, that are testing our faith, is that actually more precious than the material golds and treasures of this world? That's what God is saying. Just as gold receives greater value from enduring the refinery process, that's what God's doing to your faith. He's making it more precious. How would we respond to our trials if we believed that? And here's another question. What exactly are the benefits of proving our faith? Well, Scripture gives us, without going into all the detail, at least three benefits that stand out. Benefits of proving our faith. First, God proves faith to purge his church. I am so thankful that God brings trials into the midst of a congregation like this to purge his church. Even uh, the parable of the sower makes this plain that the church is often filled with false professors of religion who don't possess true faith. And you know what God does in his wisdom to protect the church, to purge the church? He sends hardship. And you know what happens? Non-believers can't take the heat. They don't endure. They fall away. Secondly, God proves faith by purifying us from our sinful impurities. And along with that, he uses various trials to strengthen our faith. This is what God is doing. Just consider the, the story of Job. There are many examples. If God were to eliminate all suffering from your life, virtue would be impossible for you. You see, we build virtue against distress, in hardship. It's how we respond rightly to the things we don't like in life. Think about the, the men or women of history that you admire most. Maybe somebody's still alive. And you admire them because of their virtue, their character. But now strip from that person all of the hardships, all the trials and testing, the difficult things, the things that they would have not chosen for themselves. And you know what? You wouldn't even have a shadow of the man or woman it is that you admire. Because virtues would not exist. 
Virtues would not exist without trials to forge them. Thirdly, God proves our faith for his own glory. That's what he's doing. It's for his benefit. And he's God. He has a right to that. Why is God doing this in our life? Why is he trying to perfect our faith, prove our faith? Because he wants to bring about in us a change that is pleasing to him. And for all eternity, he wants to take pleasure in his people. So God gives trials for the church to purify her from false converts to uh, trials for us to prove our faith, to forge character in us. And he gives trials for his own pleasure to glorify himself by our transformation. So the distress of trials does not diminish our salvation, we've seen. The duration of trials is only for a moment. And the design of trials is ordained by God for our good. But there's a fourth reason here in our text, I believe, that Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering. And that is the decoration of trials will be praise, glory, and honor. The decoration of trials will be praise, glory, and honor. Peter's already given us the design of trials, and now he's giving us their reward. He's told us that trials have a purpose. God has a purpose for them, but here's the outcome of that purpose. And so here's the final incentive for persevering through trials. It's a decoration of praise, glory, and honor to be awarded at Christ's return. Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ is clearly talking about the end of the age when Jesus returns. But who is receiving this praise and glory and honor? Well, I think this is perhaps the most amazing thing in the study. And it is that this praise and glory and honor is what God is giving to his people. This is uh, amazing. Believers will receive praise from God. And understand, this is not praise from God in the sense of worship. All right? Uh, this is not praise in the sense we give praise to God. But this is praise in the general sense of admiration. That God will look on the works of his hands and he will praise them. He will admire them. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we don't go passing on judgment before the time, but we wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Wow. A man who truly loves his wife, he will praise his wife. He will tell her what he admires about her. And he won't be ashamed to do so. And God is a perfect bridegroom who loves his bride and is preparing his bride and he will forever praise and enjoy his bride, his people throughout eternity. Peter also says believers will receive glory, not the glory of God himself, like in Isaiah 42, 8, where God says, my glory I will not give to another. No, this isn't that kind of divine glory, but this glory which God gives to his people is glorification. Glorification, which all his people will experience when Christ returns. Romans 8.17 says, If we are children of God, then we are heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now listen, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with a glory that is to be revealed in us. Peter will go on to say in 1 Peter 5.4, And when the chief shepherd appears you will receive a crown of glory. A crown of unfading glory. Praise, glory, and honor 
believers will receive honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus told his disciples in John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, every society has its ways of honoring its most esteemed, right? And maybe there's, there's all kinds of prizes, there's all kinds of awards and things. Maybe we think of the Nobel Peace Prize, whatever that means today. But our society has ways of decorating men and women with honor. But long after these honors are forgotten, the honor that God is awarding his people will remain. This is what lasts. This is what will endure. This is what matters. And of course, we might agree, sure, praise, glory, honor from God. Sign me up. Count me in. I want that. But the problem is what? We are far too often more concerned with the praise, glory, and honor of men than with the praise, glory, and honor of God. Just like John 12, 42 through 43 would describe, there were many who believed in Jesus, but they weren't willing to confess Jesus. Why? John explains, many even of the rulers believed in Christ, but because of the Pharisees, they were not willing to confess him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You know, one reason, probably the main reason, that many Christians are unwilling to publicly identify with Jesus Christ is that they value the praise, glory, and honor of men more than of God. Look, Jesus has commanded us to be the light of the world, to tell others about him, to represent him to the lost. But we want the praise of men, don't we? We fear the disapproval of men. But while this praise of men is so instantly gratifying, it's also deceptive, isn't it? It's like a drug. We become addicted to the praise of men, which only gratifies us for an instant and then leaves us empty and longing for more. And it turns out, that the highest honors this world can bestow you really are cheap when compared to what God offers. The praise of men is here today, it's gone tomorrow. But the admiration that God has reserved for his people who love him and fear him, that lasts forever. Peter says, if you're suffering in this life, hey, don't forget, God is testing you by fire so that the proof of your faith may be found to result in something awesome. And that may, it will result in praise, glory, and honor, which God awards to his people at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The hymnist was right. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. And life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. So we've seen Christians can genuinely rejoice in whatever suffering. And Peter's given us these four reasons. Christians can rejoice in whatever suffering because the distress of trials is, uh, does not diminish our salvation. The duration of trials is but for a moment. The design of trials is ordained by God for our good. And the decoration of trials will result in praise, glory, and honor. No Christian, including in this room, gets a pass on suffering. You will suffer, especially if you know and love Jesus. God's not going to deprive you of suffering because he knows you need it to make you more like his son. But maybe somebody here would say, you know, Pastor, that's me. I'm suffering. Maybe you haven't told anybody. Maybe nobody knows. But God knows. And maybe you need some help. You say, I'm suffering with something. Maybe it's a relationship. 
Maybe it's a struggle. Maybe it's some struggle with sin. Maybe it's something that happened in your past. Whatever it is, you say, you know what? I am under distress. I'm struggling. I just want to throw this out there that we would love to help you as a church. We want to help you. And the Bible was written to help you, to walk you through, to help you deal with distress, to counsel you in your hardship. And so if that's you, please approach me. Please let a, a brother or sister know, but we'd love to counsel you on how to deal with suffering God's way. And uh, maybe somebody here would say, well, I've never repented of my sin. I've never put my faith in Jesus. If that's you, you need to become a Christian. I'd love to take a Bible. I know we have brothers and sisters here that would love to open a Bible and just show you how you can have new life, eternal life in Jesus Christ. The kind of life that, that makes all suffering just seem so small, so light in the present time.